tackle the wider topic in which Paul is addressing. You see, in chapters 12, 13, and 14 of the book of 1 Corinthians, it all deals with spiritual gifts. Now, chapter 14 gives specific instructions on how our spiritual gifts ought to be governed in the corporate worship service. 1 Corinthians 14 extensively answers the crucial question that ought to be on the heart of every Christian. And the question being, what is worship worthy of the King? What is worship worthy of the King? And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, we're going to share from God's Word together, that very query. But as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, we invite You as Lord of this church to speak to us as Your church about this subject. How do we worship You in a way that is worthy of our King? We pray, Lord Jesus, in a, in a passage that can be contentious, in a passage that can be challenging, we pray, Lord, that You would help us to not miss this a very important teaching on worship worthy of the King. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. The Word of God says this in 1 Corinthians 14. It says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, and no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the one hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and the encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The man who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will you benefit unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even if lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you are speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? Well, I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will pray with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. But thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. 
Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, the outsider or unbeliever will enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophecy prophesy and the unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all and the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one with a hymn and a lesson and a revelation and a tongue or an interpretation, let all of these things be done for the building up. For if any speak in a tongue, let there only be one or two or at the most three and each in turn, and, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what has been said. If a revelation is made by another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn, and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That's an important verse in this passage. Remember verse 32. For, the God, for God is not a God of confusion but a God of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. Now that's another difficult verse. We'll unpack that a little later. It may not be meaning what you think when you first read it. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophecy and do not forbid the speaking in tongues, but in all things should be done decently and in order. So our sermon has five points today. Four of them are, are explicit from the text, but one is implicit within the text, and so I want to start with the implicit so we don't miss it, because it sort of frames all we're going to speak about today. It, it may be just implied, but it must never be denied. Uh, to miss point one is to miss biblical worship altogether. And so our first point, the bedrock point from which all other points will flow is this. Worship worthy of the king focuses on the king. Worship worthy of the king focuses on the king. Now, Hebrews 3.1 says, let us fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest 
whom we confess. Hebrews 12.2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, they speak of numerous facets in our corporate worship, but that we must do all of these different facets with a relentless focus on Jesus, which overflows with thankfulness to the Father because of the gift of the Son. Uh, Colossians 3 says this about the various facets of our worship that we are to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Friends, This is exactly what happens in heaven. If we were to take a moment and and be transported into heaven, we will see in heaven, as we see in the book of Revelation, which describes this to us, we're going to see beings utterly uncorrupted by sin. And what do they do day in and day out? They do this with a joyous shout. Revelation 4 gives us a glimpse of what goes on in heaven. And Revelation 4.8 says, and, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are, are full of eyes and all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, that is, resurrected Jesus who's on that throne, my friends, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, the Bible says, they fall down before Jesus who is seated on the throne and they worship Jesus who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns onto the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so, friends, worship worthy of the king has to be worship that is focused on the king. But it's really easy for fallen creatures like ourselves to put the focus in worship on so many other lesser things, good things, but not the thing. The main thing is always to keep the main thing the main thing. And that is that worship worthy of the king must be worship that focuses on the king. This worship of of Jesus needs to not be in name only. Oh, we worship here at our church. It it needs to be something that's from our hearts. The the Old Testament demanded it in places like Deuteronomy 29.18. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or a clan or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord today. Our God and goes out to serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And a lot of times we we, we wrongly think the Old Testament is about doing all these external religious things, but but the Old Testament tells us that God wanted their hearts. And and the heart can become full full of bitter 
poisonous fruit. And if our heart's not right, our, our worship's not right. And the New Testament makes this even clearer. Uh, the New Testament demands heart worship from the church of the living God. Jesus commands heart worship in places like Matthew 15.8. Jesus says, This people, they honor Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. And so friends, let's always remember that, that worthy worship, worship worthy of the King is worship that focuses on the King. Worship is not just empty words ritualistically recited. Or, or, or even emotional exuberance as an end to itself. There are many times where either of those extremes sort of crowds out heart worship in a church service. We should rather worship Jesus in spirit and in truth, and that means we should worship Him from the overflow of our hearts. If the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart, it is not surprising uh, that we pictographically use the heart to depict love. On Valentine's Day, you send those bitter little hard candies around with a little thing, and it's always a heart that is sent to, to demonstrate love. And that brings us to point two today, where our message shifts from what is implicit in the text to what is very explicit within the text. And point two is this. Worship worthy of the King pursues self-sacrificial love for the good of our neighbor over ourself. Worship worthy of the King, it's going to pursue self-sacrificial love for the good of our neighbor over the good of ourselves. This is very clear in our passage. Verse 1 begins with pursue love. You should be relentlessly running towards biblical love in your worship of the God of love. And in so doing, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophecy. So there's something connected to being loving with pursuing things that edify others. And the word for love there is the word agape. Very rare word in the Greek. Uh, wasn't used a ton in, in Greek society. Uh, the Christian church made this the word to describe love. And, and as we've spoken of before, agape love is not an emotional love primarily. It is a decisional love, primarily. It is a choice we make to love the other. Agape love is, is a self-sacrificial kind of love. It is an other-centric kind of love. Now, there were other words. There was eros love that was sort of a, a lust base or erotic love. There was phileo love, which was an affinity love. I, I like you, so I love you. Uh, but agape love is the kind of love that God has for us. A love that seeks our best, even at great cost, to the one who does that loving. It's the John 3.16 kind of love. For God so loved the world, agape the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the very first thing our passage explicitly insists is that worship worthy of the King is always this. Worship worthy of the King pursues selfless love. Self-sacrificial love for the good of my neighbor because I know my Savior. 
And this means that my neighbor's needs are going to be put higher than my own needs. This is the very problem that is haunting the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church is arguably one of the more messed up churches in the whole of the New Testament. But it comes down to, really, it's a selfish church when definitionally the church of the living God ought to be a selfless church. And that's why everything seems out of whack every chapter all along the way. The Corinthians relentlessly put themselves first. They wanted uh, to stand out. Uh, they wanted their gift to be noticed. They wanted their name to be elevated. But worship worthy of the king is worship that emulates our king. And our king did not come to be served. He came to serve. Which brings us to our third point today. Point number three. Worship worthy of the king earnestly seeks to use our spiritual gifts in service to others. Worship worthy of the King earnestly seeks to use our spiritual gifts in service to others. The Bible puts it this way. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Uh, prophesy. Why? prophesy. Well, the next 33 verses are going to unpack the reasons at great length, but the short answer is because the gift of, of prophecy is going to edify everybody. Whereas what the Corinthians were infatuated with was tongues, indeed uninterpreted tongues, and that didn't edify anybody. Nobody else got anything out of an uninterpreted tongue in church. Uninterpreted tongues, Paul writes, is going to make the lost people who visit church utterly confused. And, and tongues is never designed to assist the saved. It, it's a sign to unbelievers. And based on the context of the verse that he goes to from the law, from Isaiah, uh, it's assigned to unbelieving Jews. It's a quote from Isaiah 28 in our passage in verse 21 regarding that, that God was going to speak to the Jewish people through foreign tongues because they wouldn't listen to God in the present in their own Hebrew tongues. And so the Apostle Paul already told us back in chapter 12 when spiritual gifts were first under discussion that all of our spiritual gifts, all of them, are always for the common good. All of our spiritual gifts are always for the common good. They are never simply for our own personal good. The Apostle Peter was equally clear in 1 Peter 4.10, for each Christian has received a gift, and therefore each should use it how? The Bible says to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. God is gifting His church with an ability to edify His neighbor mightily, and God holds us accountable for how we handle that gift and how much we use it to edify our neighbor. In Mark chapter 9, do you remember the disciples were, were arguing about petty personal preference? They were arguing, who's going to be the greatest? They, they totally didn't get it. Now, we'd expect this because the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet, and so in our flesh, even when we follow Jesus, we follow Him in a self-centered way. But Jesus said to them, look, if anyone would be first, he must be last. He must become the servant 
of all. And this was blowing to smithereens the religious paradigm of many. Because friends, worship worthy of the King is, is worship that seeks to use our spiritual gifts in service to others. Which brings us to point four on our outlines. Point four on our outlines today is this. Worship worthy of the King seeks the edification of others. Not the glorification of myself. Worship worthy of the King is worship that seeks the edification, the building up of my neighbor, of others, not the glorification of myself. This is the main principle. Paul is, is, is trying to get to penetrate the, the self-centered soil of the Corinthian saints' hearts. It would be the thing that would take them from being a church that's a disaster, denigrating the name of Christ, to turning them back to, to a perfume in the room that, that makes Christ beautiful and attractive and high and lifted up. You see, the Corinthians were utterly enamored with tongues. Uh, and whatever your understanding with tongues, you can go back two weeks ago and listen to chapter 14's first sermon on uh, what biblical tongues seem to be. But whatever your understanding of tongues, if you see it to be a supernatural ability to speak in a previously unlearned but existing human language, that's exactly what it is in Acts. If that's what you see it to be, if you see it to be an angelic language based on the wording of 1 Corinthians 13, that probably is not what's happening, but if you see it that way, even if you see it as a personal private prayer language based on a few of the verses in chapter 14, whatever your understanding of tongues, whatever your understanding, there's no denying that tongues were the problem in the church in Corinth and the reason Paul had to correct them. People were speaking in uninterpreted tongues. That's the big problem. They were speaking in uninterpreted tongues in the church service. No one could understand them. No one spoke the language or there was no interpreter for that. There was no ability to understand. And so the Word of God forbids, it doesn't suggest, it forbids speaking in uninterpreted tongues ever in a church service. Additionally, this self-centeredness materialized in how they spoke in tongues. Instead of speaking one at a time, people were speaking one over the other. It didn't matter if it was in tongues or if it was in a prophecy. People just popped up and shouted out and spouted off and one would get louder and the other would get louder and, and it was chaos, it wasn't worship. No one was edified. Everyone was trying to make themselves glorified. They wanted to be seen to be the biggest deal. Why were folks doing that if, if, if it caused the Corinthian church to descend into chaos? And the simple answer is this. They were enamored with the sensational. And since some saints believed that that was the most impressive gift, they sort of peacocked over one another. And they tried to flout their special supposed spiritual feathers instead of seeking to use the gifts as God had given them for the common good to edify one another. And so that brings us to letter A today on our outlines. If worship worthy of the King seeks the edification of others and not the glorification of oneself, well then, what specifically must we adjust? What specifically will that involve you and I changing to be biblical in our worship. And, and letter A today is this. 
Letter A is this. This involves the sacrifice of what is personally beneficial for the sake of what is mutually beneficial. This involves the sacrifice of what is personally beneficial. Why? For the sake of what is mutually beneficial. You're going to see this very clearly. Let's look at our passage again. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophecy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue is just building himself up. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. The Corinthians enjoyed the sensation of speaking in tongues. It, it seemingly gave them a personal rush. But uninterpreted tongues for the rest of the congregation? Not so much. The one who spoke in tongues was excited because he uttered the mysteries in the Spirit. The one who spoke in tongues only built himself up. But that's not the point of our gifts entirely. And it's not the point of our gifts definitely in how we should use them when we're gathered together corporately. So instead, Paul says, we should use our gifts solely to build one another up. To build up, as he says, the church. Now, we each have personal preferences. We each have different gifts. We each have different abilities. I may really enjoy X, Y, or Z. But friends, church is not about me. A church is for the glory of Jesus, the one who died for us. There is a church because there is a Christ, and it's His church. He is the head. We are the body. And so Jesus is most glorified in us when our neighbor is most edified by us. Jesus is most glorified in us as it pertains to our spiritual gifts when, when our neighbor is most edified by us in the use of our spiritual gifts. My contribution to the congregation should be with the goal of building others up. It should not be with the goal of putting a spotlight on myself. You can do that in any ministry. You can do that as a singer. You can do that as a preacher. You can do that as a teacher. You can do that in any... If your goal is really to make sure everybody knows you're up here and you're doing this and you're the person who cleans the bathrooms, it doesn't matter what it is you do. If your goal is so that you are elevated, you have the wrong goal in what you're doing in your service for Jesus. Now... Calvary Church has really tried hard to put this teaching in the DNA of our church. And we have asked our members to covenant together to seek Jesus first, the greater good second, and our personal preferences last. We have done that repeatedly. Uh, we had a teaching fest where we talked about that. All the new members come through and we talk about that. That it's Jesus first. What the Word of God says, that's what we're going to try to do. And the greater good second. Now, within the greater good isn't just always the greatest number because there's Jesus' calculus uh, seems to sway heavily to the least, the last, and the lost. But it's Jesus first, the greater good second, 
and myself last. And friends, that is totally countercultural, isn't it? But there's no denying it's patently biblical. We can go to multiple texts in both testaments that always pull us back to it's, it's, it's Jesus first, the greater good second, and ourselves last. I think we need to pray that we would live that out as a congregation and not just spout that off. It's great that we all know those three. Is those the three that really govern when it's our preference? It's easy to throw that out when it's their preference. I find the challenge is when it's our preference. Now, now since worship worthy of the king seeks the edification of others and not the glorification of self, what else does this involve? Well, that would be letter B in our outlines today. And letter B is this. This involves understanding that some gifts are of greater value in certain contexts. Every gift is valuable, but some gifts are more valuable in certain contexts. We see this in verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Right there. Is greater than. Unless someone interprets. That is, unless there is something for everyone, then yeah, one of those things is really helpful and one of them really isn't. So that the church may be built up. That is, what is the the gift in this context that's most going to build up the church? That is the most valuable gift in that moment in the congregation. In certain contexts, Certain gifts are more needed in that situation. Uh, We need gifted singers. Lord, help us if I had to lead us in singing every Sunday. We need people gifted with instrumentalists. And and so soon, when these restrictions go, you'll see the stage fill back up. Uh, we, We need people who have musical gifts to do certain things at certain times, but we also need people who have the gift of teaching to lead our small groups and to help us grow in the Word of God. Uh, We need saints with the gift of faith and perseverance to be able to help us in our prayer meetings. We need saints with the gift of administration in certain situations so that we do everything decently and in order. Uh, We need saints with the gift of mercy and saints with the gift of helps so that no brother or sister is overlooked in their hour of need. We need all those gifts. And the key is that in certain situations, certain people with certain giftings need to be the the, the real central uh, anchor and, 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 and buttress in that ministry. All of the gifts are valuable, but uninterpreted tongues was not helpful in a congregational setting. Prophecy, people could understand. Prophecy would bring unbelievers to conviction and believers to clarification. And so that was helpful, the Word of God said. But uninterpreted tongues were unhelpful because they didn't help build up the congregation. Now, interpreted tongues are a different story. Interpreted tongues seem to be just fine. But but some in the church in Corinth were much more concerned about their own glorification, about being seen as being super spiritual, which they equated with speaking in tongues. And so they would speak in tongues even though no one benefited. They would speak over one another. They would interrupt one another. And it was a mess. And this brings us to point C. For if our worship is worthy of the king, 
It's going to seek the edification of others, not the glorification of oneself, and then point C will happen. This involves the subordination of the sensational and the elevation of the helpful. When we're having to do alchemy and math on ministry, the, the subordination of the sensational and the elevation of the helpful is how church should work. The subordination of the sensational and the elevation of the helpful. And yet, that's not how the heart of man works. The Bible says this, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Many different ways he could benefit. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute and the harp, do not give distinct notes, that is, if nobody can understand those instruments, how will anyone know what is being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking nothing. You'll be speaking into the air. And there are doubtlessly many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do know the meaning of a language, then you will understand. But if I do not know the meaning of a language, well then I will be a foreigner to that speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. If that tongue is uninterpreted, if I suddenly speak in Chinese, and no one else is present who speaks in Chinese, and I don't interpret in Chinese, then that is an utterly lost message in that congregation we are like two foreigners unable to speak so with yourselves since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit strive to excel in what in whatever builds up the church instead of bringing something helpful to the group some saints at corinth wanted to be seen as super spiritual so they wanted to be seen doing what they thought was the most sensational Instead of doing what was best for the rest, well, they, they selfishly and unhelpfully spoke in uninterpreted tongues, and in so doing, nobody was blessed. And they began speaking over one another, and it all degenerated into an unhelpful mess. Church can be edifying, or it can be utterly destructive. Listen to some of the analogies he uses. He uses a bugle. And so, friends, a bugle was used in the ancient world, and not that long ago in our world, uh, to call troops in battle. In the utter chaos of combat, where people are spread around and swords are clashing and musket balls are firing, um, the distinctive notes of the bugler, da-da-da-da-da-da, told people to charge. Equally, there was one that sounded retreat. Basically, if the bugler toots his own horn in any old way that best draws attention to the bugler, then the entire army has a problem. They're not called to a tactical formation to advance the operation in that situation. Instead, the entire army is subject to defeat because the bugler is sounding for his own glory. If you went to a concert, he talks about the flute and the lyre and the two playing. If you went to a concert, let's say we went to a symphony, and the cellos bellowed trying to show up the clarinets until the percussion section entered the fray and joined the foray to drown out the others. In that scenario, you would end up with a tragedy and not a symphony. Well, because the music and indeed the message of the conductor is utterly lost because the players are more interested in showboating 
instead of coordinating. And such can be the case in a selfish church where the organist tries to drown out the soloist who, who competes with the preacher, who competes with the person who gives a word of testimony. If you've ever been to Flesh Fest in a church, it can look just like that. And such was the case in the selfish church in Corinth. Verse 13, Therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? If I pray with my spirit, I will pray with my mind also. And I will sing praise with my spirit, I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of outsiders say amen? I agree. They don't understand you. To your thanksgiving, when he does not know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person isn't being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words in my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, first thing I want to tell you is Paul is not sour grapes. There are people that go, oh, well, you don't like tongues and you don't like some of these spiritual gifts uh, because you don't have those gifts, so you devalue them. No, 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 friends. Paul is not sour grapes. He speaks in tongues more than anyone, he says. So it's not a matter of some are charismatic and some aren't. Paul has the gift of tongues, the actual biblical gift of tongues. He has it and he uses it. And you know what? That would make total sense, wouldn't it? Because Paul is continually called to foreign places to talk to foreign people who speak in foreign languages. He's the apostle to who? the Gentiles. And wherever he goes, they often speak different heart languages. So it makes total sense if Paul speaks in tongues more than anyone else, if tongues is the ability to speak supernaturally in a previously unlearned existing human language. So Paul, as the great missionary, would greatly need that great gift, more perhaps than nearly any other brother in his era. And yet Paul, who clearly could speak in tongues, would not speak in tongues in church if there was no one who could understand him. He says, nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue uninterpreted. So what is the biblical value of the sensational over and against the helpful? What is the biblical value in that? Well, the Holy Spirit's math, if you just work the math in Paul's passage, it's basically 2,000 times more valuable to be helpful than to be sensational. That's the math behind the statement. In church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 in a tongue. But we tend to value the exact opposite in exactly the same proportions. Folks will often gather by their thousands to hear an ear tickler tell them what they already want to hear. But perhaps they only gather in their hundreds to hear a faithful biblical expositor. We're not that different than the Corinthians. We need to adjust our hearts to focus on the helpful and not merely the sensational. And that brings us to point D in our quest today. And point D is this. This is going to involve willful, biblical maturity in our thinking. 
In order to do this, to worship the king in the way that he's worthy of, we are going to have to integrate willful, biblical maturity in our thinking. Look at verse 20, because it clarifies our thinking mightily. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Do not be like a kid in your thinking. You know what you need to be? Be infants in evil, but in your thinking. Grow up. Be mature. How do children behave? <laughs> children are selfish. And they're fascinated with the novel, the new thing, the new toy, the new whatever. And they like the sensational. Ooh, I haven't seen that before. It shoots off sparks. It glows in the dark. Now, how do the mature behave? Well, they're going to be focused on, on the biblical. They're going to be focused on the helpful so how do we move to maturity? How do we grow up from our childlike proclivities? The Bible says in Romans 12.2, Do not conform any longer to this pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That we have to... Renew our minds through the Word of God or we will be conformed to the world and its thinking. Hebrews 5.14 says, solid food, not milk, but solid food is for the mature saint, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. They're Bereans. They're in the Word of God. They can handle meat and not just milk because by constant use of the Word, they grow in the Word and the ability to rightly handle the Word. And so, biblical maturation involves biblical saturation. If you're going to know the Word, you've got to get in the Word. Daily, repeatedly, and deeply. Biblical maturation involves biblical saturation. We are either going to be governed by our emotions pulling us to the sensational, or we will be governed by the Scriptures pulling us to the biblical. It is one or the other for the Christian. And that brings us to letter E today. This involves rigorous consideration of the whole counsel of God. This involves rigorous consideration of the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. It involves rigorous consideration of the whole counsel of God, not just our emotions and tradition. See, many Christians... Much of what we do in our Christian life is based on someone else's tradition or our own emotion. It should be based on God's decision. Biblical Christianity is biblical in its Christianity. So, so Paul takes them first to the Old Testament, to a scripture in Isaiah that clarifies the purpose of tongues. It's Isaiah 28, 21. He, he says, in the law it is written, here it is, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, even though then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And then Paul continues with new teaching, New Testament teaching, here in verses 22 through 25. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. 
While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers, if therefore the whole church comes together, corporate worship, and all speak in tongues, that lost person, an outsider, an unbeliever will enter, and will they not say, you're out of your mind. You're talking all this stuff that makes no sense. Notice that worship, worthy of the king, well, it incorporates all of the words from the king. And when we take the words of the king, it will edify the king's subjects. In fact, it will edify both believers and unbelievers. Even though tongues are assigned just to unbelievers, the prophecy benefits primarily the church, but secondarily the lost person. In fact, he goes into that. There's a double blessing when we understand what God has said. Verse 24, but if all prophecy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. And he is called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The Word of God is living and active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And just as every time you get in the Word of God as a believer, there are times, I remember the first time, that the Word of God spoke to me as an unbeliever and I began to see, I'm a sinner. And I have a problem. And I can't fix this problem. And the Word of God began to, to, to speak into my heart on areas of my life that I needed to change that five minutes before I was pretty happy with. Because the Word of God is powerful. It does not return void. And so, so here is the challenge. If worship worthy of the King seeks the edification of others, not the glorification of myself, then point F is pointedly true for me and you too. Point F is this, basic to the Christian life, but it's really hard to consistently integrate in our Christian life. This involves humility. This involves humility. Each of us has a God-given passion. Uh, some of us are passionate about worship through music. Others of us are just as passionate about worship through missions. Um, some of us are passionate about seeing the children come to Christ. Some of us are passionate about seeing teenagers become on fire for Christ. And then we have our giftings. Each of us has been given different grace gifts as, as, as the Lord Jesus deemed fit for our body. And if we are not really careful, if we're not really humble, our excitement for our God-given passions and God-given gifts, well, we can start to sort of steamroll other brothers and sisters so that instead of our churches uh, embodying beauty in the diversity of our gifting and passions, that we see diversity and unity for the glory of God, we will instead see a church where we all jockey for our personal preferences, for ministry dominance, and we divide around our petty preferences. Do you want church that, that glorifies Jesus, that shows diversity and unity in all of its beauty because Christ is the head and He's running the show? Or do you want to be part of a church where personal prominence, ministry dominance, and we all divide around our petty preferences because you get to decide what our church does. Paul wisely shares a better way than the trouble that was happening 
at the church in Corinth around being self-centered. Paul shares a better way starting in verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn and a lesson and a revelation and a tongue or an interpretation. Hey, let all these things be done for building up, not showing off. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and, and do it in sequence. Let each do it in turn. And make sure there's someone there to interpret or don't do it at all. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak himself to God. Let two or three prophets speak, not two or three hundred. Not everybody gets a shot. This isn't communism. Everybody does everything all the time. No. Let two or three prophets speak, and, and then somebody needs to make sure that what's said is true to the Word of God. Let the others weigh what's said. And if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Now that's really interesting, right? You would think, let the first guy finish so the other guy can start. This humility is so strong, not only are you supposed to yield the floor to others, but you might stop what you're saying. Wow, that's like supreme humility. Let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. Here's a really important verse. Verse 32, you might underline it in your Bibles, because a lot of mischief happens in churches when people claim that they're anointed and they can't help themselves. Verse 32, and the spirit of prophets are subject to those prophets. For God is not an, a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. So, so in humility, everyone does not necessarily get a turn at church. And, and certainly someone never gets the opportunity to take the spotlight off of Jesus Christ and onto themselves. But rather, when you come together, let all things be done for the building up of the body. And here's where it gets difficult. Someone's going to say, but, but Sean, you don't understand. The, the Spirit of God moved me to take that mic and, and, and to sing that solo and to give that word of interpretation and to give that uh, revelation. Uh, I, I was moved to the Spirit. How dare you block me? How dare you silence me? Have you heard that? I've heard that. Church becomes a confrontation instead of a congregation. Here's what the Holy Spirit says. I didn't say it. The Word of God said it. Every saint, everywhere, forever, this is what the Word of God says. For the spirit of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Friends, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit is working in your life. Well, listen to this. It's going to produce love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and... Self-control. Self-control. Tongue speakers were able to be, and indeed they were commanded to be, silent if there was no interpreter present, so they could control themselves. Uh, those with the gift of prophecy could cease their prophecy if another started to prophesy. So they too could control themselves. The Holy Spirit does not produce chaos. When there's chaos, we brought it. The flesh brought it. For our God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Therefore, all things in God's house should be done decently and in order. Because of who God is. Not because we like things tidy, but because He isn't a God of chaos. Now, verses 33 through 35 are hard verses to understand. 
unless we're biblically careful. So I want to, want to take a little bit of time there. God's Word says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. They should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, this could sound like that women just are just silent. Like we can't have, we had a woman sing today. She's very gifted of God and we praise God for Julie. Was she not allowed to sing today? Uh, we've had ladies share a word of how God's worked in their life and testimony. Is that not allowed? We have ladies come in our missions moments from the missions team and share about what God is doing around the world. Is that not allowed? No, not at all. This passage cannot mean that a woman can't speak at all in church. How do we know that? Because back in 1 Corinthians 11, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and Paul the Apostle who wrote this epistle already told us that women could both pray and prophesy in the congregation publicly so long as they did it with the symbol of authority. Remember that? That they, they, they had to have their heads covered, uh, and the men were to have their heads uncovered. There were different symbols in that society in that day that, that demonstrated their, their piety so they weren't peacocking. You can listen to those sermons in 1 Corinthians 11. If, that, if you miss that, it's going to clarify what was going on. But the point is, Paul is not schizophrenic. The Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. And so the Bible cannot and is not saying that women must be utterly silent because just three chapters ago he said that they didn't need to be. However, you have to look at the context of this scripture. That's the key to unlocking this situation. The context, the immediate context of this injunction is the weighing, the testing, the validity of these prophecies the weighing of the validity of a prophecy. People were standing up and they were saying, I have a word from the Lord, and they were saying something. And someone needed to hold that against the word of God because any idiot can say anything. Any joker can say anything. And that doesn't mean it's the word of the Lord. And so we need to be like the Bereans. And the Bereans were eager to receive the word of God, but then they diligently compared it to the word of God. The Bible says they were more noble than the men of Thessalonica because they were not just eager, they were also diligent to compare. And so it would seem that the Holy Spirit is saying that, that basically those who would be uh, the teaching authorities in the church, those who have oversight authority in the church, those whose job it is to shepherd the church, that would be the elders of the church. And we know that other passages say that the elders have to be male. That those elders were to exercise their teaching and ruling functions by what? By shepherding and overseeing these prophecies to see if what was said lined up with what God had indeed said in Scripture. The elders were the guardians and gatekeepers and I think that's who this context is referring to. They were to test the spirits being said to see if it was indeed good. Now, I believe that the gift of prophecy has, has ceased because we have God's final and ultimate word and we're not to add or subtract from it. I believe God still leads us by his spirit. I believe God still uh, gives the believer guidance. But, but I don't believe that the, the gift of prophecy needs to continue at this time. I believe we shouldn't add or subtract from what we now have written from Genesis to Revelation. But back in 54 AD, when Paul wrote this book to this church, they were 40 years from the close of the canon. 40 years from the Apostle John finishing the book of Revelation, God's final word to the church. And so when Paul wrote this book, prophecies were needed because we didn't have every book of the Bible so we didn't have all the revelation for every situation. And so I think the Holy Spirit filled the gaps during that gap 
with the word timely spoken via the gift of prophecy. But what God said in prophecy always lined up with what God said in His Word, just as Scripture always interprets Scripture. Since all true prophecy, Peter tells us, never came from the will of man, but from the will of God, all true prophecy would never violate the existing revealed Word of God. And it would seem that was the job of the elders to weigh in if a prophecy was wild and incorrect, or whether it was biblical and you could hold on to it. Being silent, however that is being expressed in this passage, and there are several people, men and women, that are asked to be silent, that requires humility, doesn't it? Just as standing down when someone else has a revelation requires humility. It requires our subordination in the congregation to God's will in that situation. But let me tell you that, that worship worthy of the king is worship that emulates the king. And let's remember Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant, and he was made in human likeness, though he was deity. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. So worship worthy of the king is going to require us to emulate our king. And our king was supremely humble. Why do we struggle to follow the king's leading in that situation? That takes us uh, to our final point today. Point five today. Worship worthy of the king. Worship worthy of the king seeks unity in the body. And we do that by conformity to the body's head. Jesus Christ. We, we seek unity in the body by having conformity to the body's head. Whatever Jesus wants, it's His show, it's His church. He gets to tell us how to do church. Not our emotions, not our traditions, but rather our Lord Jesus and the love letter He wrote to us. Worship worthy of the King seeks unity in the body and conformity to the body's head, Jesus Christ. The Corinthians thought they were high and mighty. That they were so elite that they could have a special seat at the table of the faithful. But the Holy Spirit pokes that unholy bubble by saying this in verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? <laughs> See, they used to not be a church and the Apostle Paul came and he taught in line with apostolic teaching. As Jude says, the faith that was once and for all entrusted to us. We don't get to manufacture truth. We only get to be faithful to the truth. Or was it from you that the word of God came? There are certain kinds of arrogant saints that say, my emotion and my tradition supersedes the word of God, and they're wrong. They say it boldly. They say it abusively. They say it arrogantly. They use terms like, well, I'm anointed. Friends, you're not more anointed than the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit gave us this holy book, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. It's very dangerous when we look to man, his traditions, his emotions, and his charisma to replace the word of God. And so Paul hits him on this. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that has reached? So some people think, well, well, if you were more spiritual like me, you'd see it the way I see it. And Paul's like, that's hogwash. That's, that's elitism. That's a mistake. We are all under the king. Whatever the king says is 
the king's law? Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet, if anyone thinks that he's spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul is speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And yet there were people in Corinth that say, well, Paul said that, but I don't agree with what Paul writes. There are theologians today, there are churches today that said, yeah, Paul wrote that, but we don't agree with that. And they're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. Or was it from you that the Word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it has reached? And if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That is, you have no authority outside of the Word of God. You have no authority outside of the King and Jesus is King. And so my brothers earnestly desire to prophecy. Don't forbid the speaking in tongues. Again, I, I think that this is before uh, the, the, the gaps have ended. Listen to our sermon on, on chapter 14 from two weeks ago. And when he wrote, I think this was a perfectly valid admonition. But all things should be done decently and in order. Friends, we ought to promote unity in the body of Christ by promoting conformity to the mind of Christ. Jesus is our King. He gets to run our churches. In an era, the New Testament era, when prophecy and tongues were needed, God's counsel regarding them still had to be heeded. And so we have no license to say today, just as they had no license to say then, well, here at Corinth, we're going to do it our way. We like it that way. No, friends, as Christ's church, we have to do it Christ's way, or it's not really Christ's church. It's our religious toy, and we've made ourselves the high priests of our own error. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that a passage that's controversial, a passage that's challenging, a passage that's countercultural is nonetheless a passage that is true. We know that you give grace to the humble and humble the proud, and so it's not surprising that the expression of our spiritual gifts calls us to a level of humility. We understand that You are the name above all names, Jesus. That there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. And that all glory and power and honor belongs to You. And so it's not surprising that in Your church that we should do the thing that is most good and most true. Whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is true, think on these things. What is more noble than King Jesus? What is more pure than King Jesus? What is more true than Jesus who is the truth? So may we never put our focus off of Jesus and on to something that is good but not best. May we keep the main thing the main thing. May we have the humility to interact for the good of our neighbor, for the glory of our Savior. May we allow church not to be self-centered, but Christ-centered. May Jesus Christ be lifted up high and that you may be pleased to draw all men unto yourself. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us in the contentious. Help us in the mundane. Help us into the things we're passionate about. To not steamroll one another. To not discount one another. To not be unloving to one another. But help us to be Christ-like. That You would be glorified at Calvary Church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.